SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today, we're going to chat with Doug McLean and Scott Morrison regarding Draft Day, how hockey teams pick winners or get left behind. It was published by Simon & Schuster Canada on October 3rd. The NHL Draft is an ever-evolving, tradition-laden, mayhem-steeped production. Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind, offers direct perspective from someone who is a part of that contemporary history. That is Doug McLean, who is most popularly known for his roles as the coach of the Florida Panthers, uh, who took them to their first Stanley Cup final in 1996, and as the president and GM and coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And as you will see um, throughout the book, if you read it, it and, and throughout our interview, that there's a running theme that he was often on the wrong side of luck when it came to draft day. The book is more than that, though. It, it provides a comprehensive and entertaining look at how the draft took shape. And you can feel Hockey Hall of Fame award-winning journalist Scott Morrison. You can feel his reporting and presence, especially in the parts like the infamous Eric Lindros draft day fiasco, uh, which has its own chapter. And that chapter exhibits excellent retelling with fresh research and, 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 and journalistic acumen with added perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to just revisit uh, Lafayre Lindros back in 1992, this is the chapter that really made the book for us, I think, Neil. And it happened to be unintentionally on purpose uh, topical because Doug and Scott had a good connection with Pierre Paget, who was the general manager of the Quebec Nordiques while they were, you know, having their hotel room door literally knocked down with, uh, you know, trade offers for Lindros. He was, of course, like one of the next ones, you know, the phenom who was supposed to be the next big thing. And he did not want to play for in Quebec for, you know, reasons that they do discuss discuss and which really weren't the reasons a lot of people thought he didn't want to play there but the less said about that the better um and the so a year goes by like imagine if connor bedard you know the phenom for chicago had decided and eh, I, I don't want to play for chicago i'm gonna i'll lay out for a year in, in the hockey hinterlands and wait for them to trade my rights at the next draft that's what lindros essentially did although at least in his case he had the option to go play in the olympics but anyway so that it happened to be when all the dust settled, two teams thought they had a deal in writing for Eric Lindros. Uh, and it was just a complete sort of debacle uh, that didn't really reflect well on the league, but it wasn't really through anyone's, you know, malfeasance or, you know, no one, it was just that was how business was done in the NHL in those days. And as Doug and Scott wrote, that led to things being formalized. You have to make sure, you know, that, all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted before trade paperwork is submitted to the league. Even if you're the Ottawa Senators, as who, of course, found out the hard way because they recently lost a first-round pick because 
an investigation confirmed they had not given a no-trade list for a player, Yevgeny Dadunov, when they traded him, I guess, in 2021 to Vegas, and then Vegas tried to move him to another team, and he's like, hey, you know, I got I gotta, I gotta it in my contract. You can't trade me there. Well, no one told us that. Well, and the fallout from that was Ottawa loses a first-round pick, which I saw one person say that's about a $20 million hit to the franchise's valuation to not have that pick. So that's how big the draft is and why it's, you know, important to have a book that goes through its history and, and how teams choose players. And, of course, it also costs the general manager's job, Neil. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, too, that, uh, you, you know, I was I was going to say something like, you know, the, the wackiness has kind of been streamlined, and it has been, but it's still things still do happen. Um, but but for for me, especially that particular chapter, and I, and I don't want to just belabor this chapter because the book is so much more than that, but it, it reinforces the, the pre-Bettman and post-Bettman NHL. That's Commissioner Gary Bettman, um, who took over in 1992-93. Um, you know, it's... This Lindros trade happens just before he arrives on the on the scene, and it and it's kind of that old NHL, that old NHL with the you know cigar smoking owners who just ran roughshod, did whatever they wanted, and and now it's it's a streamlined money making machine. It's no you know it's Pepsi, it's Coke, right? Um, uh, but what did Rich Cohen say? One of the great authors that we've had on our podcast, and um, we'll, we'll have on again. It, the, it's the character flaws that make. Uh, the good story, right? So um, the draft goes back, uh, and this book goes back to the draft's beginning in 1963, and then it works its way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, thinking of that, uh, if you were, uh, lots of people always write uh, you know, think pieces, you know, oh, let's let's not have the draft because you know, like European soccer doesn't have it. A lot of a lot of the uh, a lot of places in the world, their their big pro sports leagues don't have drafts like we do in North America. And I'm kind of on that train, but I also think you're going about it the wrong way. You you have to point out that to blow it up, as I've written, you would actually need some someone at the ownership level to you know go after a players association who are the ones who signed off on having a on keeping the draft. And I don't think any such you know mega billionaire unicorn is ever going to be you know a lot you know welcomed into the you know the owners club. There probably hasn't been anyone close to that to purchase a team probably since Mark Cuban, you know, bought the Dallas Mavericks in 2000 for the sum of what would be equivalent to a little over a half billion dollars U.S. in 2023. That's actually less than the expansion fee in the NHL and just a fraction of what the fee would be to own a new franchise in the other three men's pro sports leagues. And of course, you know, women's sports have, have gotten on, on board with uh, holding drafts too to sort of, you know, build up publicity. And what? But I guess historically, why are there drafts in the first place? Well, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, when pro sports were organized in North America, I mean, player recruitment was, you know, catch as catch can. Hey, can you skate? <laughs> it was, was pretty much the extent of it in the early days. But briefly, the National Football League, which always seems to be the one that comes up with the bad idea that becomes institutionalized, was the first to hold a draft. Uh, pro football was a shoe-stirring operation, really, up until the television era began. And the first NFL commissioner, Burt Bell, also ran the Philadelphia Eagles. People said he ran the NFL from his kitchen table. And unlike many other teams in those days, the Eagles weren't proximate to a college football powerhouse that was, you know, pumping out players that you could convince to continue playing for, a, you know, a few shekels every fall and putting their bodies on the line. You, you know, if you're the Detroit Lions, you could get the big star from Michigan, right? If you were Chicago, you had 
the University of Chicago was in the Big Ten at the time. You could recruit from Notre Dame and so forth, right? Uh, so the Eagles, you know, they didn't have that advantage, and they're still having to get in bidding wars for stars. So their, you know, vicious cycle, you know, perpetuates. Uh, Bell was able to convince other men who ran in the NFL teams that their league would only grow if, you know, everyone had a relatively equal shot at players coming out of college. And of course, and if they did this, they wouldn't have to hand out, you know, big bucks for that era to rookies. So a draft came in to, you know, make it fair and suppress the salaries. The NBA was sort of, you know, same vibe. It had a draft from the, I guess, starting from its very early years, although in a similar deal to legitimize itself and, and promote itself as it worked to become the one pro basketball league to rule them all. It actually had territorial picks about a dozen Hall of Fame players. That was how they came into the league. Someone being like, you know, the team in Philadelphia was like, hey, Will Chamberlain is from Philly. He's ours. Sorry. That's just how it's going to be. Uh, Oscar Robertson, who later was instrumental in the forming of the NBA Players Association. That's how the that's how he ended up starting his career in, in Cincinnati when it, when it had a team because he was from it from the area. He played uh, his college ball there. You know, imagine if that still was a, that part was still around in the NBA draft today. Imagine the Raptors, which is okay, Jamal Murray, Shea Gilgis Alexander, Andrew Wiggins. They're ours. Uh, you know, obviously you can't really develop a sports sports league that way. And the NHL actually realized that by I guess around the early 1960s. As Scott and Doug Wright in the original six days, you know, it was a catch as catch can. Teams signed a player to a commitment form that basically, you know, bound him to the team. And then they, you know, if he showed promise, they would place him in their network of sponsored junior and minor league teams. Obviously, you know, the, in that time, at that time, the deepest concentration of hockey talent, at least in terms of where NHL teams were looking, was in Quebec and Ontario. So the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs, and then to an extent the Detroit Red Wings, because they're Canada adjacent, they had you know greater cachet, clout, and resources to you know build their feeder system of players. And I think at one stretch those teams won something like 24 out of 25 Stanley Cups, those three in a 16 league. Obviously NHL president Clarence Campbell kind of realized, hey, if we're ever going to just grow out of this little tidy, you know, 16 club that's concentrated in central Canada, the Northeast U.S., and in the Midwest, we're going to have to have a, a better system. So again, by 1963, they started to phase in a draft system and started to fade out the, uh, you know, the A, B, and C form. Interestingly, I think in the book, Neil, uh, they point out uh, Peter Mahovlich, who was a player on the 72 Summit Series team, he was the number two pick in the first ever draft they ever held. And he actually went to high school in Hamilton, where just down the street from me at, at, at what's now a Cole Cathedral uh, High School. Yeah. How about, how about that? Yeah, just uh, But <laughs> They actually just had a big thing to honor him as a you know distinguished alumnus. He, he was pleased as, pleased as a puncher. There's a big story about it in the paper. And wow. baseball, of course, similar situation to hockey. See, he was kind of feeling like it was starting to get stagnant because the same teams kept winning. And they also wanted to add expansion franchise and help expansion franchises and help them become competitive. So by the 70s, everyone had a draft. And although an NFL player who had played one season and then had a career-ending injury, a guy named James Smith, or he went by the nickname Yazoo, he actually got a, a U.S., I think, federal court to agree with him that this was illegal. But the Players Association was like, well, this this is the way it's always been. So that's fine. We'll agree to keep it. And, and now it's become a big thing. It's a part of the thing that promotes the league. It's 
fun to go to one. It, obviously, our guests today, both you and I, Neil, have, have been, and it's like uh, just this sort of a celebration of the sport and a celebration of the community. It's a little bit of a graduation day vibe for these uh, 18-year-old players. I mean, for a lot of them, let's be honest, it's going to be the highlight of their career because it's so inexact. They're drafting, you know, guys who are just out of, you know, boyhood. <laughs> but it is, it's something we're going to have. I mean, maybe there's a, another way, a way to do it better, but it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime, Neil. Well, you know, just back to the book, and thanks for that uh, look back on, on all the leagues, too. Um, it's, it, it, you know, we go from A, B, and C forms, which you're talking about, and the Bobby Orr story ties into that in this book, uh, and how he was, uh, I guess, acquired by the Bruins um, um, when he wasn't in their territory. And we, we track that all the way in this book along to Doug McLean's entry into NHL hockey, which started uh, as an assistant coach with um, the St. Louis Blues in 1986. You just mentioned the Ottawa Senators. Uh, Jacques Martin was the head coach and had a relationship uh, with him in hockey, and they he brought him on board. And by the time we get to where uh, Doug McLean has transitioned from coach of the Florida Panthers and and is entering the the picture as the president and GM of the expansion uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. It's 1998 and it's nearing the turn of the century and the, the draft has, has evolved and it evolved more and more and, and there's new challenges and developments. Uh, there's psychologists, there's rooms where you bring these rookies in or these, sorry, these prospects in and find out what their psychology is, find out what their mental makeup is. And then there's, there's obviously the business of things. You're signing them to bonus payouts on rookie contracts, which the owners are you know, they're really cheesed about if, um, you know, the rookie's getting uh, more than he should. So, um, and they're also navigating uh, Russian picks. Um, you know, that came out of the 80s. Um, you know, they're they picked late in late rounds, some of the stars that had kind of emerged after 72. And and now everyone's trying to mine the globe for, for talent. And, and it's there's actually one chapter devoted to one of Doug McLean's picks, uh, Nikolai Zhirdev. And... Uh, you know, kind of what a character he was. Um, and, and that turned out to be, I guess, what you call a draft bust. But um, I, I digress in a moment, uh, for a moment to say, Nate, uh, just to touch on a point we both talked about before we got on uh, the mic to, to record this intro is, you know, it's an it's fun to laugh at and everything, but you know, just as you know, North Americans were navigating a, com- a culture completely foreign in the sense of uh, this is a, a the Soviet Union's trudging out of the collapse of their political and societal framework, and then these players are kind of emerging out of that upheaval. Um, and so maybe you know, if there was more European GMs or even analysts on TVs and writers, we'd may see this a little differently. Maybe those players would feel more comfortable. Who knows? But regardless, Zhirdev is uh, an entertaining character worth a chapter nonetheless. Yeah, McLean is brutally honest with himself in that in that chapter and and says it made him, you know, realize, you know, not at the time, time uh, necessarily, his limitations as a player evaluator. Like the one, you know, phenomena with with player intake in the NHL is they, they draft players at the age of 18, even though, you know, very, very few 18-year-olds are, you know, emotionally or physically capable of playing in the NHL. It's just sort of the, the way it's worked out. Uh, and, and you say, like, as you say, Zhirdov, a guy born in 1984 in Kiev, Ukraine, that's a, a lot of upheaval uh, in your life. I mean, you're literally the country literally born during the late Soviet era and the country, you know, the country no longer exists. And, 
he had been on his own like since his early teens it was it was a tough situation and you never know whether that just you know gives somebody raw hunger to to achieve or it's just you know pushes put makes means that they don't have all their leaks plugged by the time they they're supposed to at age 19 uh and he was and mcclade even says like you know the experience with uh Jared and columbus it had knock-on effects that affected future drafts you know two years later um they they Blue Jackets were really sweet on drafting Anze Kopitar, who's played his entire career with the Los Angeles Kings. He's going to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame one day, one of the best two-way forwards ever to play the game. But he was also from a, you know, Slovenia, so same thing for you know Eastern Europe. And they started to wonder, okay, Zherdov hasn't quite worked out the way we'd hoped. Is this going to happen again? Even though they said there was no reason to think that when they looked at the merits of Kopitar on his own, and they eventually went with. You know, the guy kind of everyone had on their list who was uh, Gilbert Brule. And Brule ended up, again, having a you know modest career, but he played his last NHL game when he was 26. And here it is in 2023, and Kopitar is still with the team that's drafted him. He's got, you know, Selkie trophies and, uh, you know, Stanley and Stanley Cup rings, and he's the best player to ever come from his, uh, you know, Slovenia. So this is the third time we've had a Scott Morrison-related book on the show. Uh, we interviewed Rick Vibe regarding Catch-22 in Season 4, Episode 9, and Scott was a big part of getting that book uh, completed, and and, 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 and and he collaborated with, with Rick Vibe on that. And last season, we covered 1972 in Season 6, Episode 1, which was a look back at the Summit Series uh, between the Soviet Union and Canada on its 50th anniversary year. And uh, we had Scott on uh, that solo. And now this time we have Scott again, he's on, but with Doug Morrison. So it's kind of a hat trick. We've, we've had him on in three different ways by himself uh, through Rick Vibe, with which uh, there was that book written uh, with the both of them. And now Scott will be our guest with Doug McLean. We look forward to talking to both of them about this book, which is an insider's look with the hook, the draft and how those at the helm navigate building a hockey team in the height of competition. And that is the pro sports world. So just before we get to our guests, remember you can buy this book on our website, click the Amazon link on the episode page and uh, any of the 60 plus uh, books we've covered so far. We always enjoy talking to our guests after reading their book. And uh, we look forward to doing the same right now on sports lit. Welcome to Sports Lit, where we focus on sports books. Scott Morrison has been on before. We uh, discussed uh, 1972 with you, of course, uh, and had a lot of fun uh, talking to you. And we're excited to have you on, Mr. McLean, to discuss draft day. So I'll ask the first question to Scott. And um, I want to know how the hook for the book came to be. And that is draft day as it relates to Doug McLean. Did, were publishers looking for a hook? Is that something you're seeing increasingly now as opposed to just, hey, this is my life story? Do they want a hook? Well, I mean, Doug was first approached and then I came in <clears throat> behind him that he had contact with the publisher. But to answer your question in broader strokes, I think, yes, that, uh, you know, a lot of people have compelling stories. But uh, if there's something you can link it to that brings the fans or the reader into you know, what's the sport, what's happening, that type of thing, the background, take them to a place that they can't get to otherwise. Um, they tend to be uh, very interesting and, and good selling books. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, 
the beauty of this book, I think, is that we tell a lot of Doug's story and stories and then link it to the bigger picture of the, the draft and hockey world. And, and, and just touching on that, Doug, um, well, I know in the book publishing industry, sometimes a publisher will approach uh, a big name such as yourself, or sometimes an agent will go through uh, that uh, personality and go to the publisher. How did that work out with you? Uh, how were you approached or, or did you approach someone to do this? No, I, you know what, I, I had been approached to do it in PEI, you know, just a local publisher years, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And I, I said, I really didn't want to do a, like a, you know, when you say a big name, well, I'm sort of a big name in PEI, but I'm not really that big a name. So <laughs> I sort of, I bailed on that one, especially when they told me that you know, the deal was if I gave them $60,000 uh, and then we'd split the profits. So I thought, I think I'll wait on that one. <laughs> so anyway, so when I got a call, I got a call from actually an agent, Brian. Um, and he, he had taught, you know, they had touched base with him and, uh, you know, asked if, if I'd be interested in doing it. And, uh, I, I, I wasn't really. And then I got a call from the publisher saying it's, it's not about yourself. It's about the draft. It's like the money ball of hockey is what we're looking for, that angle. I said, well, not sure it's money ball, but yeah, I'd be intrigued by something to do with the draft. And then we, uh, Scott came on board and, and then I got really excited because Scott and I go way back and, and uh, thought we'd be a, a good team. And so that's really how it came about. But I wasn't really keen on doing you know, uh, a book about myself, to be quite honest. And that agent, I think, is is that Brian J. Wood? Brian yeah. Wood, yeah. Yeah, um, famous Brian so Wood. The only time I hear from him is when he has a check or when he's <laughs> mailed it. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, go ahead, Perfect. Nick. Yeah, yeah. And, and Doug, you really, it's you and Scott do a good job of just taking people through the whole process and how it all builds up to the, you know, the tension of being on the draft floor. And that sort of brought up a topical question from your point of view, how would the, you know, the draft day experience change if this uh, decentralized draft, the NHL is kicking around comes to be. Well, no, it's, it's not going to change. And because the number one thing about the draft is the players being named in a certain order, you know, so that still is going to be there. What, what bothers me about it is, and I, I was in Columbus when we acquired the draft and we spent a whole year with our staff working to prepare for the draft. And it was an amazing thing for the city. It really was. It was amazing for our franchise. It was amazing for the city. It was great for the fan base. And that's what bothers me about this new, uh, you know, thing they're doing with, Everybody, I, I get the GMs want to be in their own war rooms, but I, I just, I, I love the fact you're in a city, all the hockey people, Scott mentioned this the last podcast, Ron, you're in a city, all the hockey people, the, the biggest names in the hockey world are in the city, all the scouts are there, the fans are there. I, I, I thought it kept us unique from the other sports, and I'm, I'm disappointed, to be quite honest, but I saw it trending this way the last year or so. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's unique to, to, to the NHL. And, you know, the NBA has success with their system. 
the NFL, obviously very similar, but it was unique to hockey. And, and to be in that building, it's an exciting time when that, especially when that first round is on. But like when we're in the forum or the, the Bell Center, I guess now, Doug and I, a couple of years ago at the Montreal draft, and that building was just rocking. You know, Canadians had the first pick, but regardless, it was just a fun place to be. And as I say, it's part of the, it's been part of the NHL personality and be sad to see it. And, and as Doug mentioned, you know, you bring all the hockey world together in one place. And, and that's kind of a fun experience. It's, it's interesting. And, and, in the book. Oh, go and, ahead, and sorry, go ahead. Not only that, but fans come from all over the world for that event. Like I'd be in this along walking along the stands and a guy from Sweden had stopped me, you know, when I was a GM or when I was a coach or a, a fan from Russia would stop you and say, Hey, you know, you know, nice to meet you. It was just, ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm ticked off about it, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I feel like the league, uh, you know, after Gary Bettman, they kind of, you know, I think they want to try a lot of new things and they realize, Hey, there's a lot of things that just make hockey unique. And, uh, maybe they'll they'll go back after trying this to to and realize exactly what you guys are saying. Then this is unique to hockey and it makes hockey stand out and it's special. Uh, and it was interesting because in the book, I believe you said Steve Eiserman was actually one of the people that wanted it to go in the similar way of the NBA and and NFL, um, which you know I guess I found a little surprising. Yeah, he was a guy that talked about it the last couple of drafts about he'd like to be you know they'd like to be in their own. War room now. Maybe Stevie got bothered more at the drafts than we did because he's such a big name. You know, right. maybe that's part of it. But I, I just <laughs> thought it was magical to be there and set up the war room and and be in a hotel, walk down to the lobby, and you'd run into two or three GMs or coaches, and it was just a it was just a great way to spend a five or six days. Because you don't run into the guys other than when you're playing them. And even when you go into play a team, sometimes you don't run into them unless it's at the morning skate. So I always thought it was a great way. And I, I, I guess I because I did 24 of them, you know, I was at 24 drafts in a row. And it was sort of a really exciting time for me, you know. Nate, are you up? Yeah. And I also wanted to put this question to both of you. How much was this book really the central thrust of it just to show hockey fans the – idea I think attributed to Bob Strom that you you build the depth to become a Stanley Cup contender through the draft not during a free agency in early July um you know what I Strummer was with me in Detroit when we talked about that the first time and then when I went and interviewed in Columbus it was really a major part of my interview um you know Strummer had put this thing together we had worked together on it I elaborate, took it to a little bit, to another level, but it was really Strummer stuff. And he had gone back to 1990 and looked at every Stanley Cup winner. And most, if not all, had 10 draft picks of their own on the team. And then we took it to another level. We did the multi-year Stanley Cup winners, and they were all anywhere from 10 to 14 draft picks on these teams that were their own picks. Even when St. Louis won their first cup, they had 10 draft picks of their own. So it was a model that Strummer developed that I used in Columbus. I'll never forget, we were playing in Phoenix. It might have been year three or four of the franchise in Columbus. And we, I was standing there watching the warm-up, and I count, we have 10 draft picks dressed that night in, in Arizona. 
And I remember sending a note to all my scouts congratulating them that, hey, all we have 10 draft picks planned tonight. Maybe we're headed in the right direction here. Didn't work out that way, but anyway, we had 10 one night. So, you know, I just think it's a it's a great model. And yeah, you know, it 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 changed a bit with Vegas and Seattle with the way they've come into the NHL and are better teams than the typical expansion team. But still, your own if you look at every team, their best players typically are their own draft picks on every team in the NHL. And if not, they're a top draft pick from somebody else's team, like Eichel, for instance, second overall in Vegas, or you know, the 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 Petroangelo, a third or whatever he was overall in Vegas. So top draft picks a lot of cases are the franchise players. You could argue that the draft are the two most important days of the year for, for an NHL team for a lot of reasons. A lot of what Doug just said. Uh, even more so now in a salary cap world where you need yeah. to have that uh, uh, channel of good young players, cheap young players coming in to play for you. And because you've lost the middle class in the NHL now because of the salary cap. And then that draft picks are, are, are capital. Uh, they're currency for teams, whether you're going to use it to pick and start your rebuild or continue your build or to use those picks as we see so often now when you're a team that thinks you're close to try and get over the top. My question, actually, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, and I'll, I'll ask Doug this. Um, there's a analytics chapter, very candid, uh, the dividing line, uh, I think you would describe it as uh, in hockey right now. Um, so this is a question I've had for, and I've, I've posed it to numerous people. Um, and I'm going to pose it to you. So essentially, is if analytics is the way to measure anything and everything, do you think one day we'll have a metric for character and the intangibles? Um, you're right, being a good person means a lot in the pursuit of a dream. So do you think we'll get to the point where there is a, a metric for character or something like that that's not an on-ice um, event or stat? You know... I think it's going to be really hard to have a metric for character. I, I really do. And I look, I, I'm a believer. I wasn't a believer in analytics. I thought it was a bunch of BS. Okay. And, but the more I've looked at it and the more I've tried to open my mind to it, I've sort of come to realize there's great information, good information. Um, and if it's used in the right way, and if your analytics people have the right attitudes and your scouts have the right attitudes, it could be very beneficial. I just think that, that, you know, character is is an amazingly difficult thing to judge. I had team psychologists. I We did testing. We did all the stuff that we're supposed to do. And you know what? I, I You thought you knew character, but sometimes I really messed up on it. I mean, I love Nash's character. I picked Jared at number four. His character was, I don't, I don't think he was a bad character. He had a terrible upbringing. His parents, you know, he was, he was alone from the time he was 13. And sometimes mm -hmm. that builds character. He just, he just was a, a, a lonesome lone wolf. And I, so I missed on character on a few guys, but most of the time you had a pretty good feel, but I, I don't know that I don't believe there'll ever be a metric for, it, but maybe I'm naive. 
I loved uh, Eisenman's quotes on analytics where Eisenman says we're still trying to figure it out. And I love John Madden, the famous ba- Madden, the famous baseball man. You're saying, "Hey, uh, I I just want to know what time it is. I don't know. I don't want to know how to build the watch and keep them out of my dugout, keep them out of my clubhouse. But I like the information. So uh, I'm warming up to it. Leading into that chapter, it says Scott knows. I wasn't in trouble with that chapter, but it it came together nicely. But I got the guys didn't even want to talk to me, the GMs and coaches in the league. They said, Doug, we don't want to talk about, yo, we'll talk to you, but you can't use our name. Nobody would yeah. be quoted on that chapter because they, they just did bug them, you know? So it was fun to do. Uh, yeah, I noticed that a, a lot of quotes with, uh, you know, no, no, it, uh, you know, no one attributed to it. Um, I was just going to say, I think analytics is an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. And, you know, it, it's it's a tool, um, but it's hard to replace the eyeballs. You talked about character. Well, you can interview players and, and all of that. But we, we mentioned in the book, too, is what you don't see in the numbers is you might have blocked a shot, but it could have been a shot that just hit you and you got but where another guy dove head first to block the right. shot. You know, you can't judge those sorts of things from numbers. You don't know how a player reacts when a coach sits him on the bench. You don't see what that reaction is like and and how he uh, mingles with his teammates and, and all of that sort of thing. So I don't think you'll ever replace eyeballs entirely with analytics. I just don't see that that working. Scott, do you, um, do you see, I mean, the big thing right now is, AI, artificial intelligence. Do you see artificial intelligence making some sort of almost an immediate impact in the way a, a hockey team's run from scouting to basically every element of the of, of being a, a person that runs a team? Do you think they'll use AI? I'm sure somebody will give it a try. I don't understand it, but I'm sure somebody <laughs> will give it a try at some point because it, you know, people are always trying to find a better way to find an edge, right? So what do you have to lose? Give it a shot. I, I I would love if they could use AI when I was coaching to put <laughs> me in the dressing room, a fake me in the dressing room, giving a speech, and maybe it w- I would have been more successful, you know? Or a fake me on the bench when I was an idiot yelling at the referees. And, uh, you know, I, that's the one thing that bothers me about my career is every referee that's written a book I'm at least a page in it about what a jerk I was. So, you know, I, I wish I had AI to, to cover that up, you know. <laughs> I like that part part in the book where you uh, threw the, the dentist out of the rink uh, who was uh, yelling at the kids. That was pretty funny. Um, and my wife. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, so Scott, there there's some really detailed historical um I guess, context in this book. And, you, you know, you talk about the A, A, B, and C forums, Sam Pollock. Now you both obviously came together on this, but I'm addressing it to you. Um, do you think, I mean, right now, I mean, I think this goes in cycles, but it seems like we're in a cycle where history isn't really like in vogue. Did you, did you, do you feel that way? Do you get that sense? And um, how did you feel showing how the draft kind of evolved shows how hockey's become basically big business as opposed to, what it was before, which I don't think was really what we see now. It was less sanitized. 
Well, I think, you know, obviously when they first started the draft, and it's ironic that we're talking about taking it behind closed doors in a sense, but, uh, you know, nobody knew it went on. We talked to the story about Ken Dryden, didn't know he was drafted by Boston until 10 years later, and he had beaten them in a Stanley Cup final by that point. But, um, you know, I, I think it was Pollock and what he did with the, the Canadians and the Lafleur and all the first-round picks and all the, that really made the draft Get, uh, gain its notoriety and, and put it on the map as being a special thing. And then when you got into the 80s, it became a really, really big deal. You know, moving into the rinks and, uh, you know, television getting on it. And, yeah, that's when it really started to become big business. Do you do you think that, uh, I mean, just as a writer in general, do you think we, um, I feel like, you know, younger writers, bloggers, uh, people on Twitter, they can, can they kind of, uh, I guess devalue the history of the game in a way. Do you feel like, you know, we, I feel like we, we're not in a, in a, I feel like we're in a cycle now where we're not looking back on things in the same way that we probably once did. Well, I think that's the way of our world that the new generation doesn't pay as much attention to what our history is all about. And you learn from history and you grow through history uh, and learning from it. And I don't think there's enough of that. And, uh, you know, how much that should apply. You know, I hear former players who are in the media now and some are my friends and I'll hear them talking and say, like I heard the other day, said, you know, I think the Islanders won two or three cups back in the 70s or 80s. And I'm thinking, you played in the NHL. You should know what the Islanders did right. in the early 1980s and things like that. And and it is a piece of our history. And so when, if Dennis Potvan shows up at, at your game, you know who Dennis Potvan is, one of the greatest players ever, or have an appreciation for, for what Wayne Gretzky did. You know, we have a chapter in the book about Eric Lindros. And, you know, I don't think, you know, he was one of the greatest players to come into the league, was a dominant player, as Doug talked about, coaching against him was the best player in the game for several years, but because the injuries, obviously the, the career got short, but I don't think we remember Eric Lindros for the stature that he had at the time. And it, because we just don't, a lot of people don't pay enough attention to the history of the game. And I, you know, you know I did the 70, I did the 1972 book, which sold phenomenally well, which I'm excited about that. But if you look at what the Canadian government did the Canadian people, we didn't celebrate that team anywhere close to how they should have been celebrated 50 years after arguably the greatest hockey series ever. And right. it, the one that changed the game. It's, it's interesting because I do think it's cyclical too. I know, Nate, I'll let you go, but I do think it's cyclical. And I think just in the where we are, maybe the technological revolution or whatever, um, I, you know, I think it'll come back again, but it certainly feels... Uh, though as though what we just talked about there might just not be that focus that there should be uh go ahead Nate. And I, yeah speaking just, of just uh, one thing sorry, I, just, yeah, just one ahead, point Jim. on that i want to add like it, when you're when we that's what i liked about the book is that we were talking about the draft and i i remember going back and looking through how the lottery has changed over the last 10 years and it's about seven different changes and I remember going through and looking at, okay, that, that, that rule changed, that rule changed, that rule. And I, and I thought it was important to have it in there. You know, you don't have to go into depth on it, but just the fact that they can't seem to get it right even, you know, <laughs> because they keep changing it. And it pissed me off because I lost like a chance to get Sid because of a change to the lottery, right. you know? 
So, I mean, I, I thought it was important to, to put that sort of stuff in there, along yeah, with the yeah. history of, of the Pollocks and the, some of the greatest GMs in the history of the game. Yeah, yeah, it's it's ever evolving, and I, I do I do think well, what you're saying is the contemporary history, right? There is a contemporary yeah. history to yeah. the the draft, and that is right. ever evolving as well. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah and speak and speaking of that that chapter with Eric Linderos, uh, how valuable was uh, one of the Quebec Nordiques executives, Pierre Paget, to the two of you with just reconstructing that whole uh, you know wild saga where a guy gets where two teams think they've traded for this uh, phenom. Well, he was phenomenal. Um, and as we mentioned in the book, he kept detailed notes of all the conversations that were going down while they were trying to move Eric. From, he had notes from the day they drafted him and actually before that, when they had meetings before they drafted them and then all the way through uh, anytime there was a conversation and anytime there was a conversation with it was 14 teams at the end who were in the bidding. So he was a phenomenal assistant for us. And uh, he had, when we talked to him for a couple hours one day, he had everything spread out in front of him. He had all the details. So there's a few people have tried to say, I didn't make that offer, but uh, those <laughs> names were discussed. Let's say that. Yeah, and I got to give credit uh, where this came from. Paul Henry, who was a former scout of mine, and he's a hockey lifer in the NHL both as a team psychologist and also a scout. He, and he mentioned to me, he said, hey, uh, he, him and Pierre Paget are great friends and he works for he worked for Pierre with Red Bull in, in Austria. He said, hey, Pierre, you, you, you guys got to talk Lindros. And, uh, and he said, Pierre has everything. And Pierre loved to tell the story. So I, <laughs> Scott and I talked to him and we said, yeah, we got to have that chapter. So when Scott and I phoned Pierre, he had a relationship with Scott for a long time and trusted Scott. And we were friends for a long time. So it was a natural for him to give us the information. And, and uh, I know Scott and I really, really appreciate it because we've gotten more questions about that chapter than maybe anything else, eh, Scott? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I covered the saga as it was unfolding. And so I knew, yeah. you know, some of those names were coming out over the days while it was all unfolding. But never to the detail that uh, that we were able to write. And I don't recall ever hearing, you know, the story's always been, and Pierre brought it up again, that they made two deals and they were double crossing. Well, nobody has explained how the two deals actually came to happen, that it wasn't right. them being right. dastardly. It was just no communication within the, within the organization or Marcel Obu running roughshod was a better way to put it. Pierre had everything under control and Marcel was running around like a crazy guy. <laughs> uh, just, just before you jump in, Nate, I, I thought like, I didn't know that eventually it was the whole thing was solved because the arbitrator looked at that note, right? The note was yeah. the, I guess, I don't know what you want to call Gee. it, the smoking gun or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Go it ahead, was amazing Nate. really. Yeah, and and I guess I didn't realize either until I read that. But ultimately, out of that, I guess I don't want to throw around. Fiasco seems like a bit of a harsh word, but out of that, I guess that really led to formalizing how these things are worked out with uh, trade trades and such. As you yeah, no, put in the book, it was there was no trade calls prior to that. It was sort of a handshake agreement, and then you phoned the league and said we've done this deal, and it's okay, and then away you go and. Meanwhile, you could have talked to two or three teams and there was no formal process. So out of that came the, the trade call where you have to phone, you know, the, well, Doug's been through it 
central registry and they have to approve everything. Yeah, and, again, and obviously it's gotten only more complicated with uh, salary caps and, and, and whatnot. Uh, Doug, I, I did I did want to ask, you mentioned, uh, of course, drafting Nikolai Zherdov in, in Columbus and, you know, the, the, the Crosby draft and I think in, in taking Gilbert Brule that year when you were, you know, had, had a strong, you know, feeling about Anze Kopitar who's going to be a Hall of Famer. I guess, I guess to what extent was writing about that sort of important for yourself and, and also how what might it help understand, you know, how a general manager approaches these things, things each year. Well, it's funny. Um, the reason I, you know, I've been, I've been ripped uh, mightily for that, for that pick. And I, and I, as I put in the book, the genius Pierre Maguire uh, was quoted when Montreal took Carey Price Instead of Brule, he ripped Montreal for, you know, not taking Brule and taking Carey Price, who, by the way, we had rated 22nd, I believe, on our list. And most teams had Carey Price in the second round in that draft. But anyway, I I sort of laugh about it now because, uh, I, as, and I said it in the book, as Kiprio said to me, what do you think it cost you? He said it on the radio last year. What do you think it cost you taking Brule over COVID? I said, Probably about thirty million, personally, you know, because if I would have taken COVID, I'd probably still be a GM today. Although who knows? But you know what? It, it was a it it was important to tell the truth because I was the guy that made the call on it, and you know, to to make the change with very little pushback from my staff. When I got fired and left Columbus, I got thrown under the bus by a lot of people saying I was solely the guy that wanted wanted to brule and that's how it was perceived and that was how it was portrayed whereas my key people knew that wasn't the truth but i'm the one that made the decision and i'm the guy that should have taken the heat because i was the boss and i think it comes out pretty loud and clear in the book that the gm takes the heat on all these picks and very few of them do they even have any say in the, the, the amateur scout makes the chief guy is the one that makes the call and 99% of the time the GM agrees with him. That's how it really happens. But I thought it was, and I, and I also wanted to take my guys off the hook. My, my scouts were scared when they heard this book was coming out. They were nervous <laughs> about it. And, and I, I remember phoning a couple of them saying, guys, you're going to enjoy the book. You're going to enjoy the book. And they, but they were worried because they're still working in the game. And they thought it might hurt them, and and it didn't. I think it explained it, how it happened, and how tough it is. If you're 15% right as a GM in the draft, you've had a hell of a career. Yeah, and, and that kind of intuits what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. I want, that's what kind of what I intuited, what, a question I wanted to put to you, Scott, because it used to be a 20-year-old draft way back in the 70s, and then it, I think the age – then it was kind of graduated in early rounds for 18 year olds, later rounds for, for older players. Now it's 18. Like how, just how difficult, you know, we're looking at it from our perspective as writers. Do you think it is for the NHL teams to get this right compared to the other sports where the, where the intake happens with guys who are a little older? Well, I mean, kids grow mm. incredibly over those two years, physically and emotionally, mentally, uh, there's so much development, whether it's just in day-to-day -day life or as a player. Um, so, yeah, that time really 
puts the odds in the wrong direction of getting it right in a lot of cases that you're you're guessing and makes it that imperfect science that it is that uh, you don't always know there's no well there's some sure things but a lot of it is is you know you can do all your preparation and and your eyeballs and your analytics but there's still that element of you don't know what that person's going to be like two years down the road. So it, it makes it tough, but it was for legal reasons that the age came down that it was challenged Kendall Insman and, you know, the, the, the young guys that went to the world hockey association back in the seventies. So uh, I think if the, the NHL had its way, it would be old, the 20 year olds. But then again, as long as you can cycle through the young cheap talent because that's the key with teams right now to have that lower end uh, talent developing on your roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and you, you know what you want the players to be in camp too at, at 18. <laughs> I guess. You know, you know what is really the, the funny thing about the draft. And I, I think about this all the time. I'll never forget going into the, the Eric Stahl draft. Okay. Which was Yerdev and thinking, Oh man, if we can get Eric, I remember having Eric Stahl, come into Columbus with Horton. And I talked about that in the book and interviewing them. I was praying I was going to get one of those two guys in that draft. I was praying I was going to get Eric Stahl. And I remember watching video after video and watching them live. I remember the Taves draft, praying I was going to get Taves. And if it wasn't Taves, I really wanted Nick Backstrom. And all of a sudden, I'm picking six in the draft. You know, and I get Derek Broussard who played a thousand games, who was a really good player, but he wasn't Taves and he wasn't Backstrom and he wasn't, you know, those guys. And it was so much luck. George McPhee gets Ovechkin at four, you know, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I'm sitting in the four spot most of the year. And then I fall out the last week of the season, you know, we, because we won a couple of games on the West coast and you, and, and I'm thinking, that son of a bitch won a Stanley Cup. Stahl won a Stanley Cup. Ovechkin won a Stanley Cup. Backstrom won a Stanley Cup. Taves won a bunch of them. It's funny how it goes. It's a little bit of luck, too. Trust me. Yeah, a lot, a lot of luck with the, any detail, like the Columbus Blue Jackets franchise. There's always the, the perennial, uh, I guess, perennial bridesmaid with the draft lottery, which does seem like a weird way to God. determine who gets to pick first. And yeah, second torture. and whatnot. Torture. And I can whine about it. I can whine about it to you guys, but I can't whine about it to anybody else, you know? <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned Zhirdev, uh, and I just finished the book uh, today. So it's the second last chapter. And I, I it got me thinking. I mean, you throughout the book, there's there's little nuggets about how you know tough it is to deal with Russia. I mean, I don't think you stopped going at some point. Um, so yeah. uh, my, my question is like right now, and you have a lot of contacts and people, you know, in the game um, with what's going on in Russia, is it harder? Are people more reluctant to draft Russians? Like what's going on right now uh, in terms of hockey and drafting players uh, because of what's going on there politically? Is there an issue right now with that more so than there was before? Because there was before as well. I- I think there has to be a little bit of an issue about it. I know, you know what, after the Jaredev thing, I, I, I was really, I was really nervous about it. We had, we had in Detroit with Fedorov and Kozlov and Konstantinov. We had a great run of great Russian players and great people. You know, I acquired Sergei 
Fedorov to come to Columbus because I was hoping he would be able to straighten out Jaredev, you know. But I gotta believe there's a little more hesitancy about it. I know even the Makayev kid this year in the draft, people thought he slid, you know, because maybe he'll still be a great player. But there, there's, there was all even in my era, there was a there was a nervousness about it. But Jaredev was so good, and I mean, when I watched that kid, I thought, oh my god, is he might have been the best player I ever saw from a talent perspective. He was that good. He was that special, but I'll tell you what, I, I remember interviewing him and I talked about it in the book. I, I left the interview nervous about him. I did. I left the interview nervous right at the draft. And uh, I remember uh, he left our, our interview room and young and Brown came in, who ended up becoming the captain of LA from Guelph. And I'm yeah. thinking, wow, what a difference in these two kids. And one guy is going 12th and the other guy, I can't take Brown. He's going to be the 12th pick. I'm taking the fourth pick. So anyway, that's the way it goes. But I, I think there's got to be some nervousness, no doubt about it. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I was going to say, I, I would think today there would be nervousness just because of what's happening in the world and not knowing if the player yeah. is going to be able to get out, that sort of thing. And it's almost like it was uh back in the you know the 80s before the iron curtain came down that you you could draft a player and all like the guys doug talked about were all late picks because you didn't have any idea if they ever get out they had to smuggle them out at that time uh, to get them here yeah. so you know it was a whole different situation then and then once the iron curtain came down things changed dramatically as to where the you know czechs and russians were where they would be uh in a draft order. So uh, I would think there would be some reluctance for teams now but, to not use and, a high. And there even is. There. There, there even is with, with Panarin. Think about Panarin in New York a year or two ago when he criticized Putin. There was a major nervousness around that team over that criticism of, of Putin. And, whoa, where is this going? Is he going to is he going to be back with us? Or is he, you know, it was it was a tenseness in the organization. Yeah, definitely a loaded situation. Um, yeah. Doug, uh, we're, we're getting towards uh, the end here. Uh, I just, a uh, couple of questions left. Uh, and this one is to you. Um, what, you know, you know, we've, as we talk here and throughout the book, you know, you, you know, there's this kind of theme of like, ah, you know, unlucky in a lot of ways, right. And where the ball bounced in the draft or what happened to maybe a guy like Zhirdev, but what transaction. And I, I know you might, it might be Rick Nash or Ray Shepard, but I'll let you tell me what transaction did you uh, orchestrate or what did you do uh, as the GM that makes you sit back and smile right now, makes you happy? You know, and it's funny. Um, I, I, I'll never forget uh, trading uh, Kevin Adams, the GM of the Buffalo Sabres, in our in our second year in the league. Uh, Kevin was a Miami of Ohio kid, a Toronto Maple Leaf draft pick. We picked him on the expense. And I traded him to Florida for Ray Whitney. Ray came in and became our captain, 70-point guy, and was a star for us in Columbus, played in the All-Star game a number of years. You know, and I think back to that. But, you know, I think the thing that I'm most happy about is there's not a player that I had in Columbus, not a player I had in anyone in my 24 years in the league that I would be afraid to sit down and have a beer with or run into and talk to. I, I, I think I treated players well and I was honest with them. And I, 
I don't have many regrets about it. You know, I had a lot of fun and I was unbelievably, as I said in the book, the NHL is a long way from PEI and I was pretty lucky. If, if you're going to have a uh, drink with Jerdev, it might be red wine and he might be spilling some of it, I'm imagining. Too. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I'd have no trouble running into Nicky. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to run into Nicky Jerdev and have a real heart to heart with him. You know, how he screwed up my, my career and cost me millions of dollars. <laughs> He's buying it out, definitely. Go ahead, Nick. I also, I also wanted to ask uh, because I, I used to live in in Ottawa when he he was there. What what did the late Brian Murray mean to your career? Brian Murray, it's funny. Uh, uh, we, I was just talking to Jacques Martin the other day. Jacques gave me my first job in St. Louis. Um, it gave me my first opportunity from that coach at UNB to go to St. Louis as an assistant coach, but. He gave me a start, and, and Brian Murray made my career. I, there's not a chance I have the career I had without Brian Murray from, you know, hiring me in Washington and us going to Detroit together and going to Florida. He gave me just amazing opportunities. And really, if it wasn't for Brian, I don't have a very long NHL career. That's, that, that is the, the truth, the fact. He was that special to me. Nice. Um, so lastly, my question to both of you, and uh, we can start with, uh, it's basically a what's next or what are you guys up to now? So I'll start with uh, with you, Scott. Uh, hey, the media has proliferated. We're, you know, it's it's not the greatest place in the world right now to be. Um, so uh, where are you at right now? Are you, are you focused on more books? Um, are you uh, getting into the digital media world? What are you up to? Uh, focused on more books, yeah. I mean... I call it semi-retirement. And Doug and I started this project because we were both unemployed at the time. So. <laughs> but like a lot of media people. Yeah, there was a lot of us uh, left at roughly the same time. So now I'm working on more books. I did this since I left in 2019, did Rick Vive, and then uh, the 1972 book, and uh, now this draft day with Doug. And I'm uh, in the process of writing, uh, you mentioned Brian Murray, uh, Mike Keenan's book. And they... Oh. The two of them had a history going back to the Memorial Cup in uh, in 1979, I guess it was 1980. Peter Burrell, uh, yeah, Peter Burrell, Peter and uh, Brian was coaching Regina, and uh, oh, Regina, yeah. there's a big controversy at the Memorial Cup this year that Keenan's team was throw, uh, accused of throwing a game against Cornwall, which bumped the host Regina and Brian Murray's team out of the uh, out of the final. And uh, as it evolved, Cornwall ended up beating Peterborough in the final. So Mike says, yeah, I guess if that was our plan, it wasn't a smart one. But uh, and Brian was crazy. Well, Doug, you would have heard from him. Brian was crazy for years about crazy, angry towards Mike and Peterborough for years about it. Eventually, they sat down. And I don't think it was until many years later, they sat down and had a beer and uh and got back on the same page. But anyway, so I'm doing Mike's book and it's, it's going to be a good tale. Yeah. Well, that, that was 1980. And I, th- I want, and as a former junior hockey person, I remember two years later, they started the format with the host team in it and the fourth team. Yeah. Was there a connection? I wasn't around then. I was just a, you know, a little kid then, but was there, is there a connection between that format change and what may or may not have gone down in 1980? Or was so it's, it's because of that, that you could kind of adjust your position. So they, they made it a different format. 
Yeah. It's, it's it yeah that's 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 interesting i imagine too with the, the last bunch of books you did it'd be canadian focused although i'm 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 wondering if maybe you guys are going to go down to columbus uh and promote the book here for draft day but with keenan i'm sure you're you you, you know new york will be all over that they, they would let I me mean, because i don't think he's released a book right um no he hasn't so i imagine that, that you'll you'll probably get a pretty big audience for that book down there given how what a soap opera that was down there in 94 and everything so yeah no he had well he had several stops in the states with uh, you know he's in chicago as well philadelphia big run there yeah and uh and draft day is selling selling in the states as well it's uh you know it's got an appeal everywhere if you're a hockey fan in any city and uh, you're interested in the history and the draft and how it affects today's game then uh, uh you know people are buying it's great to see uh, Doug, uh, thanks for that, Scott. Doug, what are you, what are you up to now? Do you, what, what's going on with you and, and where do you see yourself? Do you want to get back into the game somehow, or what would you like to do? And what are you doing? Um, you know what? I, I, before this, I was at the pool and I come up <laughs> from the pool to do this interview and then I'm going to go over to the beach. I'm out, we live on the beach. So I'm going to go down to the beach after this. Um, no, I don't envision getting back. Um, I, I'm involved in PEI real estate. I, when I was early on in my NHL career, a buddy came to visit me from Florida and he said, Hey Doug, we should be buying land here. It's free. And uh, <laughs> it's close to free. So, you know, I've got a, you know, we've done some apartments and I've got some, uh, a lot of waterfront property we're working on. So I'm busy. I'm busy doing that and enjoying it. It's a great hobby. And I think I'll retire as a writer since after we hit the fifth, Week in a row was a bestseller in Canada. I think I may officially retire as a writer too. Number six, six weeks in a row and counting. Well, nice. Oh, it's six. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I love I love it because I know both of you guys. I mean, have to be competitive, and you're probably matching yourself up am- amongst the other bestsellers out there. Oh right yeah, hundred percent. I'm watching it like a hawk. <laughs> well, you know what? We appreciate you giving us this much time, especially a few weeks after the. Uh, What's it been? It's been about six weeks, right? Since the book was released, obviously. So, uh, thank you. And uh, like I said, you can you can always buy the book on our website and support these guys. So, thank you uh, for your time today, and uh, it was really uh, enjoyable to talk to both of you about draft day. Uh, likewise, thanks for having us. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks a million. Uh, thanks for the support, guys. Really appreciate it.